The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box. We are live this morning from London and Saudi Arabia. Let's have a look at your headlines. We're just less than 24 hours away now from the launch of the world's biggest IPO. And Saudi Arabia's finance minister tells me that in spite of lower oil prices, lower reserves and a widening deficit, this is a country that is not, he says, running out of money. We are not running out of money. And if you look at our balance sheet, it's not only deposits with Aramco. We have a lot more assets. Sorry, deposits with Sama. We have a lot more assets. China's consumer inflation soars to an eight-year high in November. An outbreak of African swine fever continues to drive pork prices up. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian leader Volodymyr Zelensky emerge from landmark peace talks with a ceasefire agreement, but fall short of bringing an end to the five-year-long conflict between the two nations. NBC News learns Democrats plan to introduce two articles of impeachment against President Trump bringing the U.S. leader up on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. UK parties make their final campaign push ahead of Thursday's general election. Labour's shadow chancellor John McDonnell tells CNBC renationalising the country's utilities will be key to Britain's success. The experiment with privatisation has resulted in catastrophic failure at times. In fact, in rail, it resulted in deaths, accidents taking place, health and safety undermined. We've seen increases in prices and charging for water. We've seen profiteering on a scale that I think people feel is obscene. So, very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the programme. Let's focus on this headline story around Saudi Arabia. The country has announced its 2020 budget with a fall in spending and revenues expected in the kingdom, signalling a widening deficit and higher GDP growth. Uh, Let's get out to Hadley for more on her exclusive with the Saudi finance minister. Actually, Jeff, you spoke to us first on CNBC last night after the announcement of that budget after 8 p.m. And as you very well know, we're less than 24 hours away now from the launch of the world's biggest IPO right here in Saudi Arabia. Now, a lot of questions, of course, concerning um, how much that Aramco IPO will actually feed into Saudi's budget uh, predictions for this year and years to come. I asked the finance minister about that, but I also asked him about the growing perception. We've heard it again and again on CNBC, including from General David Petraeus just a couple of weeks ago out of Abu Dhabi, that this is a country, a kingdom that's running out of cash. Listen in. Uh, That is actually um, very interesting. We have the third largest foreign reserves in the world. Uh, We, uh, unlike so many other countries, we also have government reserves, deposits with the central bank that other governments don't have. That stands today at about 500 uh, billion Saudi Riyals, short of 500 billion Saudi Riyals. Our aim is actually to slowly um, slow the drawdown and then rebuild the reserves as we control expenditure and uh, grow our uh, revenue. So they're wrong. You're not running out of money. No, no, we are not running out of money. And if you look at our balance sheet, it's not only deposits with Aramco. We have a lot more assets. Uh, sorry, deposits with Sama. We have a lot more assets. We have 
the PIF, which is a government asset that has been managed by PIF, which is in excess of trillion uh, Saudi rials. They are going to get more revenues, even more. Uh, so they will have more asset under management. We have other assets that are being uh, run by other institutions. We have significant funds uh, that are sitting in the development funds, as you know, uh, which supports the private sector and loans that these are rebid and rebid and reinvested in the economy. Uh, so there is a lot of assets at our disposal if we need them. I don't think we will in any uh, near future. That was the finance minister here of Saudi Arabia. Listen, he was basically saying to me that in spite of years of lower oil prices and the fact that their reserves are lower, they are not intact, he said, running out of money. They've got the, high, the third highest um, reserves in the world. I thought it was really interesting that he was keen to put that out there, especially against the backdrop of this Aramco IPO. I want to quickly, though, run you through some of these numbers. Remember, of course, Saudi Arabia's economy really doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is the largest economy in the region, and everything that happens here does have an impact to Gulf Arab countries and the broader region in terms of money spent and in terms of private sector investment. So just to give you a quick idea of what we're looking at, this is not an expansionary budget like we've seen in the past. At the same point, it's not quite the austerity budget that many folks were speculating we might see. Public debt sitting at 26% of GDP. The budget deficit forecast 187 billion Saudi rials. Total expenditure 272 billion Saudi rials and total revenue they're expecting 833 billion or so Saudi rials. So not expansionary in the way that we've seen past budgets, but at the same point, um, nothing really to write home about in terms of really drawing things back. Interestingly enough, he wanted to point out to me as well that when it comes to the non-oil growth in this country, they've really been able to push that forward, raise the dial on that over the last couple of years. That's about 30 percent um, and make, basically makes that about 20 percent higher than it has been in like past years. What I also thought was interesting is our conversation surrounding the Aramco IPO. Of course, when we talked about this over the last couple of years, I sat at that press conference just three or so years ago with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. He said he wanted as much as two or even three trillion in terms of valuation. Now it's sitting at 1.7. I asked the country's finance minister, how does that impact your budget? Because now we're talking about instead of 100 billion, potentially something like 25 to 26 billion feeding into those coffers. Listen into what he had to say. Two things. I think this is a very important question. Uh, I am very glad really to see that we have been able uh, to execute um, earlier than what they anticipated uh, when we interviewed before uh, the IBO in a very successful way. Uh, we have seen a demand uh, that is overwhelming, about five times oversubscribed. Um, the revenue as part of the Vision 2030 strategy, the revenue that we are going to get from the IPO would go to PIF to fund PIF investments, uh, a lot of it inside Saudi Arabia to actually diversify the economy, to stimulate the economy, to support the growth and create more jobs. And some of it will go uh, internationally. Uh, that continues to be the same. PIF is going to also receive the proceeds uh, from uh, the sale of SABIC, as and when it closes, that will also provide it with more funding. You would not imagine that uh, you know uh, an institution like BIF will be able to spend that much money at a very short period of time. So the, actually staging it, it might be a good thing for them. Were you disappointed that they were unable to reach that $2 trillion valuation? I have always said, and His Royal Highness the Crown Prince, when I was asked, last year he said the market will determine this we believe actually the the value of the company is in excess of two trillion the price that is determined by the market is the price that is determined by the market 
there you have it. The Saudi finance minister saying, you know, we believe internally that this is a company, Aramco, that's worth more than $2 trillion valuation. Um, I think it does certainly reflect what we're going to see playing out here over the next 24 hours. Already, uh, we've had significant pushback when we've tried to figure out how we're going to cover this listing. Of course, that happens around 9.30 tomorrow morning. We've asked if we could head down to the country's stock exchange to be on site uh, for this exciting moment, really, for Saudi Arabia. And at this point, we're not allowed to go do that. They may be doing something over at the Fairmont Hotel, but it just seems in so many ways that they really scaled back of what they tried to do here with this Aramco IPO. At the same point, guys, I got to tell you, the folks here that I'm speaking to on the ground and even more broadly, some of the folks that I've spoken to from the banks that were working on this listing, expecting this to trade up. They don't expect this to be in any way a failure for the kingdom. And I think what's going to be really interesting going forward is how that really does play out a little bit more broadly to the economies across this region. Because as I say, of course, this is an economy that is the biggest in the region and everything that happens here has a direct implication for certainly private sector growth as well in places like the UAE and Kuwait and elsewhere. So let's watch this ripple effect and see how it all plays out, guys. Hadley, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, Let's move on and take a look at some data out of China this morning. And the big debate, as we know, as we come to the end of the year, is what stimulus or otherwise will China be willing to introduce to its economy uh, as we run into 2020 and whether they will um, stick to this 6% growth target going forward. I'm not sure that the um, auto sales data that we're going to read to you now uh, gives the government much comfort at this stage about the resilience of the consumer spend. Uh, November vehicle sales negative 3.6% year on year. The uh, number was uh, a negative uh, 4% for October. The Jan-November vehicle sales then coming in at negative 9.1% year on year as against uh, 1.7% negative a year earlier. The new energy vehicle sales, uh, which is something that we hear plenty of uh, Western analysts hold up as a sign of China's strong commitment to a green agenda, a negative 43.7% here. Um, The new energy vehicle sales across the year to date, January to November, plus 1.3% year on year. So this data coming out of the Industry Association that compiles the statistics. Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning. Good morning. morning. 17. 17 months in a row we've seen Chinese auto sales falling. Uh, I'm quite heartened by your NEV figure, Jeffrey, because in October it was 45.6% decline. So a stabilisation on NEVs as well. But isn't that extraordinary that the auto industry, which has put store in two things, one, emerging market growth, two, new energy vehicle sales, has completely and utterly got it wrong. Uh, And as I put to someone um, at a uh, uh, an energy minister's meeting panel in Paris. Um, actually, the problem with new energy vehicle sales is a they're over too expensive the vehicles. B there is no subsidy for anyone to switch. And C they don't do what they said on the tin. Now I don't know if either of you saw yesterday there was an article in the UK press talking about SUVs outselling NEVs or electric vehicles by a multiple of. Did you see the figure? No. Do you want to hazard a guess of what UK SUVs are outselling electric vehicles by? Um, five times. <laughs> Ten times? <laughs> Twenty times. <laughs> that's my, that's my guffawing, by the way, <laughs> in case you wonder what that strange noise was. Come 37 on. to 1. Wow. 37 to 1. Do you wow. know why? 
because SUVs do what they say on the tin. You may not like them, they may not be that environmentally friendly, but you know what you're getting when you get one. You're getting a big, ugly brute of a vehicle, which yeah. you know what you're getting. Whereas en these new energy vehicles, you, they say they do 150 miles, they do 90. So they say they give you this range, they do a fraction just, of that as just well. Just for the sake of clarification, do you have the breakdown into hybrid, non-hybrid uh, I can get it for you. Because I think that, that would be interesting, because even as we might poo-poo the uh, intention to see transition to, uh, quote, cleaner um, energy vehicles, we know that the hybrids and different types of hybrids, i.e. those that use the engine to drive the battery yeah. and those that use the engine to directly yeah. drive the wheels, um, offer some variance to the completely electric time vehicle model you saw an um, a hybrid do what it said it was going to do in terms of uh, mileage uh, well that's an open question isn't it from manufacturer to manufacturer they have uh, their own tests and then they get real world tested and sometimes those numbers are, are not the same we Can I know. Throw competition in? I mean you mentioned SUVs Dave and if you think about the SUV component of the auto market it's been hugely competitive in recent years a whole bunch of innovation around crossovers every major automaker is putting at least one model out there to compete which means there's a lot of interest for customers because there's a ton of products to choose from if you think about the new electric vehicle competitor of the Chinese market there's not been a ton of international competition a lot of Chinese players but if you think about some of the best in breed we're still waiting for some of those top-end um, autos to roll off the the factory production line and go into the Chinese market from the likes of Daimler, BMW, and even Tesla. So Tesla arrives January next year. It's vowing to have some of those electric vehicles in the market. And you may recall recently there was the announcement that it could have access to the subsidy regime in China. And the Chinese think this may be a good thing to revive some interest in the category of new vehicles because you've got a big flashy new badge arriving in town and maybe with some more German uh, competitors arriving too. It might revive interest in the segment away from just here have a subsidy buy a new electric vehicle to a customer saying wow that looks amazing I actually want that car. Subsidy yeah yeah but maybe on the side as well that's another incentive but actively as a consumer I want to buy that car which is good old-fashioned autos. Yeah I mean I think the subsidy issue is is critical in the Chinese sales experience and the fact that they've actually cut the subsidy goes a long way to explaining why these sales have probably come down at this point. Um, the, the, the broader issue, I think, is why we've seen a, a spike in savings rates, not only in China, but other uh, developed market economies as well, because there is this ongoing concern about uh, growth paths. And we have this um, meeting uh, in China, I think, in a few days' time, where the government is likely to sit around and talk about what they're planning in terms of growth projections for 2020. No, one of my primary well, aims on this channel it is to preserve our viewers' wealth. That's kind of one of our initial years ago mandates, not only to inform them about politics, markets, economics, but to try and preserve their wealth from charlatans, what have you. And you saying about buying new cars and why people are or aren't buying them, I would say to our viewers, don't buy a new car. Don't buy a new car. That will save the planet. And we don't have to build the new car if you don't buy a new car. We don't have to uh, ship all the components from around the world. And, dare I say it, you don't have to lose about 20% of the value of the car in the first couple of months when you've driven it out of the showroom. There you go. That's me. Uh, up with the auto industry. Well, they could just move into a mud hut and abandon all no, material no, goods. No, I didn't say that. That wouldn't go badly either for How the global economy. How about a bit of economy? longevity in what we consume? 
surely if we consumed less and didn't have to have brand new every two years like these lease schemes are telling us to do, yes. then surely the planet would be have a little bit more longevity to it. A twenty-year-old yes. petrol guzzler on the road doesn't help the planet either, does it? If you just keep the car and changing your car every two to three years, as indeed actually is the case is the way that most people buy their cars now because they buy them on lease plans personal lease plans do we think that that has longevity from a consumption no, not point on of that view? page either but you know there, just, there is a model out there no, no, about trying to move is, to electric I mean, who in their right mind would buy a brand but, new car it's insane but karen makes a great point about the improvement of the technology going forward mm. and you do need to embrace that i mean we're going through a process of dematerialization mm. if you think about what the mobile phone now replaces it is amazing. Mm. You know, no need for, a, for a, a video camera, no need for a camera. Mm. Um, there are a dozen, at least a dozen other devices that have now been replaced by the mobile phone. And with the vehicles, it's a similar story. You know, the bog standard saloon you get now is as fast as uh, James Bond's Aston Martin DB5, right. which was a top of the and range you can drive sports that car. How back far in a 20 mile zone in London? Well, you you can't drive it at all, can well, exactly. you? Exactly. So why Without do you care about the top penalties. end speed being 140 no, 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 miles an the, hour? The point is that that vehicle that is a modern saloon car now can do the same speed but at much lower emissions because it's more fuel efficient okay. and it's got a better engine. Well, let me come back to you on emissions. What, what, real world emissions or laboratory emissions? Real world. Oh, yeah, because the emissions that I'm reading from all of these auto manufacturers uh, are not real world. When are the lab-tested figures going to be anything like driving the street up South Norwood at uh, 4.30 in the morning that I do? I can't disagree with you on that. I think some of the auto manufacturers have played a bit fast and loose. All I'm saying is, do, is, any, is there any doubt or reason why the buying public, our viewers, are sceptical about... A, range, or B, emissions, or C, spending a lot of money on these products as well, given everything they've gone through over the last few years with Dieselgate, <coughs> um, with, with their, their personal finances being stretched, by the fact that they buy these new vehicles and they're worth a fraction within months. When they try to sell them back, the balloon payments are enormous or buy them off them at the end. Really? Is there any reason why our viewers are sceptical? I mean, how many recalls have there been? I'll throw that one in. I had a recall recently sure. for an order car. Even on your swanky... Small vehicle. <laughs> uh, we've got to move on. And on that bombshell, we've got to take a break yeah. to pay for the advertising. But we haven't had a look at the markets yet. So we'll do that when we come back. Stay with us here on Squawk Box. Still to come, uh, Ukraine and Russia strike a tentative ceasefire in Paris. But is the real winner Francis Emmanuel Macron? Uh, we'll decode that story in just a moment. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse.
I think you guys need to watch the in the break bit as well, where we continue talking about autos uh, at length as well. Anyway, let's have a look at the U.S. markets. Uh, a down day for the U.S. indices, despite, uh, of course, last week was extraordinary. Net net flat on the week last week. But my goodness me, what oscillation. Big dip at the start of the week. Uh, by Friday, of course, the payrolls had uh, made everyone very excited. So we had a big rally. Um, we were down across the board. Eight out of 11 sectors were in negative territory. The Nasdaq down four tenths of one percent, as indeed was the Dow Jones Industrial Average. I think it's all to play for this week. I actually think it's a really exciting week because, okay, I, I could paint a picture of why the FOMC is interested, but I don't think you are interested because let's be honest about it, there is going to be no change, or so we believe, from the Federal Reserve. But I do think later on in the week as well, with the Brexit scenario uh, getting a new infusion of interest potentially from the UK general election, which is penciled in for Thursday, um, that will be very interesting to see whether we get any resolution on that. Uh, and then, of course, we have this deadline on extension of US tariffs for the 15th of December. So I would suggest to you the tail end of the week looks very, very interesting. In the meantime, lots of big US data, including in the next 24 hours CPI data. In fact, a little bit longer than 24 hours, uh, but uh, tomorrow anyway. Uh, the ASX 200 down three tenths of 1%. That is the real outlier. Apart from that, Shanghai Composite, Hang Seng and Nikkei are all trading around the flat line. Let's have a look at the opening calls. And again, uh, a pretty flattish start to trading. Uh, and I always wonder what's coming next when I can see on the auto queue, Jeff, your words start off with France is bracing. What are they bracing yes. for now? Well, I think we're back in strike territory, aren't okay. we? France is bracing itself for a sixth day of strikes as state officials and union leaders failed to reach an agreement on the government's pension reforms. Monday's transport strikes saw chaotic scenes at Paris's Gardenau train station. Unions are now calling on teachers, doctors and public sector workers to join the strikes. The French Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, is set to outline the government's pension plans on Wednesday. Russia and Ukraine have agreed to exchange all remaining prisoners in the Donbass region and committed to implementing an existing but rarely adhered to ceasefire. Russia's Vladimir Putin and Ukraine's Volodymyr Zelensky met face-to-face -face for the first time in Paris for their first round of peace talks in more than three years. Speaking to reporters after the summit, the Ukrainian leader said all prisoners in the country's eastern region should be freed by the end of the month. The parties have reached an agreement on liberating all the prisoners before the 31st of December, following the principle of all by all. It has been agreed to verify the list of prisoners and provide access by the Red Cross to all prisoners. Russia's Vladimir Putin said any final peace deal must grant the Donbass region special status. We need to synchronize the negotiation process with political settlement. First of all, it means amendments to the constitution that will ensure special status of Donbass on constant terms. We need to prolong the agreement on the special status of several regions of Donbass. The Paris talks have been widely viewed as part of the French president's bid to command a more assertive international presence. Well, Charlotte joins us with more to discuss uh, Macron's diplomatic push. Charlotte, the Germans are also mentioned uh, with the French as part of these negotiations. They're quite pivotal. We're not talking about the Americans. So just talk us through the latest on this. That's right. What is warming up towards Russia has very much be part of the Macron diplomatic strategy. Um, and that's ruffled a few feathers in Europe and in Eastern Europe in particular. But just a few weeks after his election, he invited Vladimir Putin to Versailles uh, to the opening of an exhibition on, on Peter the Great. And that was already a first sign. Then he invited President Putin just before the G7 in Biarritz. Again, that was a very strong signal. He was invited at the presidential residence in the south of France. So again, the signal here that, uh, that President Macron wants to 
rebuild the relationships with, with Russia. And again, countries like Poland have been very nervous about this. And Germany has been quite critical about it as well. And just last week, again, President Macron tweeted during the NATO summit, where his comments, as we know now, have created a bit of tension here, said Russia is not our enemy anymore. It is still a threat, but also a partner on many topics. And that is here the pragmatic view, say, of, of the Macron uh, government towards Russia. And again, this meeting yesterday was one new step in trying to rebuild the relationship between Europe and Russia. And the fact that this meeting, now the question is, will results come from this kind of diplomatic push from President Macron? We don't know. At least this meeting is the first time of this Normandy format talk meeting. It's the first time they're happening in three years. And Zelensky and Putin having bilateral. That wasn't sure until the last minute. It was all held at the Elysee. Macron Putin were having bilateral. Merkel on her side was having, but the Zelensky Putin bilateral was unsure until the last minute. And then finally it happened. Should we bring in our Ukraine correspondent? Yes. No, just just because I'm, I'm very interested to see whether there's any movement on Crimea as well from the Ukrainian point of view. They still see it as sovereign territory, of course. The Russians have de facto annexed it as well. Um, that would be the key to potentially unlocking um, the release of sanctions and what have you, if indeed there was some movement on Crimea. I can't see how that will ever happen. I don't know. If you've got any insight. At the moment, the talks yesterday were exclusively on Eastern Ukraine, and, and they kept yeah. insisting that this is just Eastern Ukraine talk. We're not talking about Crimea. Of course, yeah. you'd imagine that in the bilaterals behind doors, Crimea might have been a topic, but at the moment, they kept insisting this is about Eastern Ukraine. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Show. Weekdays on CNBC.